wonderful to be with you today. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. I, uh, I would like to invite you to grab your notes out of your handout if you want to follow along. And you'll see that we are jumping into a new series here. It's called Faith Conversations. Our desire is that we would be able to have a few high, kind of higher level conversations, uh, almost like seminary level or at least Bible college level, uh, as far as maybe some sticky points about what it looks like to be a Jesus follower. Uh, how is it that we sort of answer some of these more difficult questions about uh, following Jesus and and uh, so we're kind of jumping into that over the next few weeks and today we're talking about the Bible and specifically as we talk about the Bible we're, we're, we want to answer questions of what is it and and what is it communicating and what do we do with it how do we understand it how do we apply it etc and I, I know that as I begin this topic, there are some of you that this is not even a question mark for you. Like you, you have been in the word and you've been kind of tracking with God through his word for so many years that you don't even understand what it is that you're doing when you read it. You don't understand that how, how you're making decisions, how you're understanding it, how you're choosing to apply uh, different portions of it to your life. And it's just so intuitive and it's so natural and it's so easy for you. You just don't get how other people can have struggles with it. It's a little bit like technology. Some of you are really, really good at technology. It just becomes, it, it's so intuitive to you. It's so user-friendly, so natural that, you know, you're working with something and if, if you can't figure something out, you just reroute this and plug this in and you reboot this and plug this into the motherboard and you just change the flux capacitor and hit reset and, and it's just easy for you, right? You just make it work. And, and it's so easy, you can't figure out how people like me don't understand technology. It's just so difficult for me. I've got one trick, turn it off, <laughs> then turn it back on, see if it works. Like, that's it. That's my whole bag of tricks right there. And, uh, you know, my kids, they're just, they're just like, um, oh, poor dad. You know, he just doesn't get it. And some of you are like that. You're just kind of shaking, oh, you know, poor so-and-so. They just don't get the Bible. But then some of you, you're, you're on the other end of that. You're, you open the Bible with a, with a pure heart. You jump into the Bible and you're like, wait a sec, this doesn't make sense to me. I, I, don't, I don't get this. This is God's word. And yet it seems to be about battles and in some cases genocide. And there's, there's these weird places where slavery seems to be condoned and, and women seem to be uh, valued as less than men. And there, all of these questions come up and, and you don't know how to approach it. And again, it's just, it's just like kind of technology. And so what I want to do today is I want to get into a message where the, the design is that it will be helpful, profoundly helpful for every single person here. And what I mean by that is if you're here and you do have questions about the Bible and how to approach it and how to, to understand how to understand and apply it, then it's going to be very helpful because it's going to help answer those questions for you. And if you're here and you don't have any of those questions, it's actually going to be helpful for you so you'll know how to answer those questions when your friend or your son or your daughter or your cousin or your spouse comes to you with those kinds of questions, you'll be able to answer them and articulate what it is go that's going on under the umbrella of what we call the scripture. And is this an important conversation? Absolutely. Uh, history and current events have revealed to me what I would call biblical adventures in misunderstanding. And, and what I mean by that is, and again, I don't call out different groups very often from the stage. It's just not a part of how God's wired me. But, but, but I'm going to mention a couple of groups, and you're going to know them instantly. Um, groups like Westboro Baptist protesters who show up at funerals for soldiers with these huge picket signs that just spew hatred. And they think they're doing God's work and they couldn't be more deluded. Gr groups like uh, the KKK or the neo-Nazis. And unfortunately, th these groups tend to have little seeds in what I would call very ultra-conservative aspects and corners of, of Christianity in America. And, and it's, it's so disheartening to see them as they, they project what, what they think is God's heart, and, but it's so profoundly mistaken. As if they think God's heart is a racist heart, or that God's heart is a bigoted heart, or God's heart is, is a heart filled with hatred, and so they spew this with this confidence. 
misunderstanding, of course, that every single human being that has ever lived is made in the image of God, right? Misunderstanding completely. The the heart of Jesus that's revealed, the perfect heart of, of God that's revealed in the person of Jesus is a heart of love, not for a few, but for all, right? And misunderstanding the reality that in heaven there will be every tribe and every tongue, every ethnicity, uh, th- th- this is going to be a beautiful reality of, of God's variety and, and God's love, God's beauty in all of humanity. So, so you understand that, yes, it's important that we get what to do with this thing called the Bible. Because, because if we don't, we could find ourselves, you know, kind of severely mistaken like, like these groups that I've just mentioned. So to begin with, the Bible is absolutely amazing. It's, it's beautiful and it's unique. And many of you already know some of these uh, realities about the Bible. It was written by over 40 contributing authors over the span of 1,400 years. So 40 different authors. We know almost all of them, but there are a few mysteries in there. But, but 40 authors, 1,400 years. And yet there is this common, what I would call a meta-narrative. There's this, there's this string of meaning and purpose. There's this revealed heart of God that absolutely is consistent all the way throughout. As, as we see revealed in the pages of Scripture, God's plan for salvation, God's heart of love, etc., And God did this through human authors. So he inspired humans, men, to write uh, what we have as as the Bible. And he did not just dictate to them. So it wasn't like he just plugged in and downloaded like the Matrix. Uh, he, he, He inspired them, and then they wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but uniquely, so that their unique writing styles come through, their unique personalities come through, the unique circumstances and situations to which they are writing come through. So there's all of this variety, and again, like I said, and yet there is a unity and a clarity that runs throughout the entire thing. Martin Luther, uh, he says this, and uh, he's the, 500 years ago, he began the Reformation, and, and uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. He says, whoever wants to hear God speak should read Holy Scripture. So if you want to know what God's thoughts are, you want to know what God's will is, you want to know what God's heart's all about, you want to hear him speak, read Scripture. And so what I want to do is I want to get into, well, so how do we do that? How do we read Scripture? How do we understand what God's heart is? Is The first fill-in is that we must begin by understanding context. We have to understand context because the Bible speaks to several different contexts over the course, like I said, of 1,400 years. And again, that 1,400-year span was 2,000 years before we were, were, came on the scene uh, in our lifetime. So you recognize that context shifts in all of this, and, and we need to, to remember that. Some of you already do this with great regularity and great clarity in your own mind, and you don't even know you're doing this. So let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean. In Exodus chapter 12, we receive instructions for the Passover. And again, I don't know how you want to take notes today, but today would be a great day to take notes, anything that God brings to your mind as we, as we talk. The, the Passover had clear instructions. And you might recall, this was so that those, uh, all of the Israelites who were enslaved by the Egyptians, that when the plague came down upon the people of Egypt, that 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 plague would pass over the Israelites, that they would not be affected by the plague, by by the, it was actually actually death was going to visit the households and uh, the firstborn uh, sons were going to perish that that evening. And and that was the final scene in which uh, the Pharaoh would begin to let the Israelites go. And so all of that's going on, and so there are clear instructions for the Passover. Well, after the Passover, the Jewish community celebrated Passover every single year. And there were clear instructions for how they would continue to keep and to celebrate the Passover as a way to give glory and honor to God who passed over them and saved them out of Egypt. Now, the question is, even Jesus, by the way, celebrated Passover all the course of his life and throughout his ministry, even unto sort of that Thursday night before he was crucified. So here's what I want to ask. Why don't Jesus' followers celebrate Passover? Context. 
The answer is context. We, we recognize something about the context for which the instructions were given to Israel, which are now no longer applicable for our lives because of context, specifically the context of the person of Jesus Christ. So let me go to the next example. The next example is in John 129. John 129, John the baptizer looks across the way and he sees Jesus walking along and he says to all of his disciples, all those listening, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, no one who reads that passage of scripture thinks that Jesus had like fluffy wool all over him and that he walked on all fours and was like, nah, nah, that's not a good lamb, but... The, the idea, like nobody looks at that passage and goes, he's literally referring to a lamb. We know that this is a metaphor. We know that, that there's something deeper and richer that's going on. And in fact, what John is saying, John the baptizer is pointing to Jesus and saying, this is the sacrificial lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world. In other words, the Passover lamb that must be killed in order for the wrath to pass over, Jesus himself is God's provision for the Passover lamb. That's why we don't celebrate Passover anymore, because God himself has fulfilled the Passover on our, in our behalf. So again, context, you know that contextually, and that's why when you read that passage from Exodus, you don't start to get worried. Well, how come I don't celebrate the Passover yearly? How come I don't celebrate it more than yearly? How come we don't celebrate it weekly? How, like, you, those questions aren't asked. Why? Because of context. I'll give you a couple more examples. Exodus 21, verse 20, talks about limiting the physical violence that is acceptable toward your slaves. Now, this is a, a tough passage, and I know that there are some theologians today who try to kind of whitewash over the concept of slavery. Oh, it wasn't slavery. It was just like minimum wage work, you know? But, you know, I'm, I, I'm the lead pastor at Overlake, and we've got several folks on staff here, and, and uh, you know, if I were just to limit the amount of physical violence I committed against my own staff, you wouldn't be too happy with me as a pastor, and we'd go through a lot of staff. So... Uh, uh, so it's, it's not that. There's like that, that and, and again, I hope you understand this from the bottom of my heart. I find slavery in any way, shape, or form completely reprehensible. It's just, it's just, it just and, I, and I know God's heart does too. So if you don't understand context, this is a really kind of a stumbling block kind of a verse. So here is the, the contextual reality. What God is actually saying is, look, it, it, surrounded by nations who own slaves as property, where slave owners can beat their slaves to death without any kind of consequence, I want you to treat your slaves better than they do. And in fact, if you remember, this is an exodus, they have just exited Egypt where they were slaves. Where in Egypt, their slave owners could beat them to death without any consequence. In fact, where their slave owners could take away their children, if you remember the story of Moses, and kill their children without any kind of consequence whatsoever, God says, you do not treat slaves like this. You treat slaves with humanity and with dignity and with honor. And so there's this progression forward as well. And again, I, I think this is a part, if you want to think contextually, big picture, one of the meta-narratives of Scripture is this, that, that God led his people out of bondage in Egypt and into freedom in the promised land as a kind of precursor for what Jesus wanted to do as he leads us away from the bondage of sin and into the promised land of freedom and liberty with him. So you recognize that there's this meta-narrative going on through all of the scripture, and so at the end of the story, it's not just treat your slaves better, it's set your slaves free, that, that, that we are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, so, but again, how do we make those decisions? Context. That's how we know what the scriptures mean. Last example, Matthew 14, this great episode where Jesus comes to the disciples on the lake. He's walking on water on the Sea of Galilee. Peter's there, Lord, if it's you, call me to come to you. Jesus says, come. Peter walks on the water. This is absolutely awesome, miraculous, wonderful scene. They get back in the boat. And, and so here's the question. How come we don't have weekly 
practices where we go out on Lake Washington and try to, you know, walk on water and just believe enough. And, you know, I, I get out there on a paddleboard and I'm like, come to me. And you're like, you know, oh, you've little faith. And I, you know, like, like, well, why? I mean, I've been in Israel with many of you and we've been on the Sea of Galilee in a boat. Why didn't we stop the boat and say, all right, guys, whoever believes, let's go, you know? Why? Because here's the deal, context. Context, yeah, we absolutely believe in a God who can perform the miraculous. That's not even an issue. But, but the issue is the walking on water is secondary. That's just the platform. That's just the methodology for us to see that Jesus actually is God in the flesh. And, and he is a God who, who can create the miraculous and make the miraculous happen in your life. And so the challenge is we take that knowledge into the circumstances that we face and the trials that we face and have faith in a God who is with us and who can miraculously lead us forward no matter what. The water is secondary. But how do we know that? Context. It's always context. You have to understand in context what's going on. And we make these decisions, we make these choices all the time as we read through the pages of Scripture. <laughs> By the way, and, and there's some really wonderful and fascinating parts of the Old Testament, especially as you do some digging. I, I, I was digging in this week, and I found this, this verse. It was in Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 11.19. And it's just, it was so encouraging to me because it says, don't eat bats. And I, I was like, you know, I'm doing really well in that. Uh, I mean, I don't think, I mean, I could walk by a buffet and a whole plate of bats, and I, I wouldn't be tempted even a little bit, you know, and uh, Krispy Kreme, bat, I'll, I'll, you know, it's Krispy Kreme. So it's, I just want to encourage you. Some of you are doing a lot better than you thought uh, you were doing as far as following this thing. But again, how do we understand what's going on? We understand through this concept of context. And by the way, I would just say, just kind of big picture, one of the greatest arguments for why we know this actually is God's kind of heart and God's will revealed early on, 1,400 years ago, or rather 3,400 years ago, the reason why is because of the barbaric, violent, that, that ancient world where pharaohs were gods, where violence and sex and even rape was just exalted. It wasn't just tolerated. It was like those were the values. And in the midst of all that, this, this moral, even loving, justice-oriented society emerged with, with a monotheistic Focus. There was one God that they were going to listen to and follow. And, and just that alone is this compelling argument to know, oh, there had to be a God behind that. That, that. that doesn't just evolutionarily kind of through culture go from like violence and, and destruction and, and absolute control and ownership to all of a sudden, no, treat one another well. You, you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. You're going to serve the Lord your God with all your heart. Like the, the idea is that, that stuff just doesn't happen if it's human construct. It's, there's something behind it. And so we get into it. Now, how is it that we understand the Bible? If you're filling in the blanks, the next one is the Bible reveals God's plan for salvation. God's plan for salvation. And it reveals so much more. It reveals God's plan for hope for us. It reveals God's plan for purpose in our lives. But I want you to see that overarching, like the meta-narrative of all of Scripture is that God has a heart to save. This is his plan of salvation. And, and salvation of souls, yes, but also for the reconciliation of all things. What God wants to do is he wants to recognize and, and show us the spiritual reality that sin has entered into humanity and separated us from God, yes, from one another relationally, yes, in love, and, and even from our own selves. We don't know our own hearts because of sin. And because of all of that separation, God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus to bring salvation, to bring reconciliation and restoration, to redeem us and unite us with God, unite us with one another, and unite us with our own hearts. In fact, if you want kind of a real Cliff Notes version of Scripture, you might want to write this down. God chose a nation to birth a son to save the world. That, those are the major movements of Scripture. God chose a nation to birth a son to save the world. That is the Cliff Notes version of the Bible. You're welcome. 
And again, Jesus is that plan. And so here's what we read in Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So the work of Jesus on the cross is God's plan of salvation. When we talk about uh, Jesus being God's son, what we're really talking about is Jesus being the, the full picture of God, the visible image of the invisible God. That's why the scripture says God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Christ. Okay, so the Bible reveals God's plan for salvation. The next fill-in, the Bible is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. And what I want to do is I want to go through examples of how this is true. And again, if you want to take some quick notes, you can. I'm going to kind of blaze through this. Jesus is mentioned in Genesis 3 as the promised one who will one day crush Satan under his heel. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb of the Passover in Exodus. In Leviticus, the high priest makes sacrifices for all the people. Christ has become our high priest, providing the perfect sacrifice to atone for our sins. In Deuteronomy, Moses prophesied of one who would come greater than himself. Jesus is that one greater than Moses. Joshua meets the captain of the Lord's host. That's Jesus, the Lord of hosts. In Judges, the leaders deliver God's people, each of them an archetype of Jesus, our deliverer. Boaz, the kinsman who, uh, the kinsman who redeemed Ruth's inheritance and identity, is a picture of Jesus. David, the anointed one in Samuel, is a precursor to Jesus, and Jesus is described as a son of David. The book of Kings speak of the glory of God filling the temple. The chronicles describe the glorious coming king, both in reference to Jesus, the king of kings. Ezra depicts Jesus as the Lord of our fathers. Jesus is the rebuilder of the wall, the protector of God's people, the reestablisher of a right relationship of worship with the Father, embodied by Nehemiah. Jesus is the one who risks all at such a time as this to intercede on behalf of his people, bringing salvation, illustrated by Esther. Job says, I know my Redeemer lives, and I will stand with him. Jesus is his Redeemer. Christ appears in the Psalms, including David, describing him as my shepherd. Jesus is wisdom personified with the Father in creation in Proverbs 11 and John chapter 1. Isaiah details Jesus' birth and describes the suffering servant narrative of Jesus' crucifixion hundreds of years before it took place. Jeremiah reveals Jesus will be acquainted with sorrows. In the book of Daniel, Jesus is the fourth man in the furnace of Babylon with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Joel describes Jesus as the hope of his people. As Jonah spends three days in the belly of the fish to emerge, bringing salvation to Nineveh, Jesus spends three days in the belly of the earth to emerge, bringing salvation to the world. Amos tells us that Jesus is the judge of all nations. Obadiah paints a picture of Jesus' coming eternal kingdom. Zephaniah speaks of God delighting over us, referencing the new covenant of grace, whereby Jesus we are not objects of sin, but rather children cleansed and favored. Zechariah speaks of Jesus entering into humbly, riding in a colt. Malachi calls Jesus the son of righteousness. <sighs> There's a lot going on. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, that seems like the whole Old Testament. And yes, that's the, whole, that's the point. That's the whole Old Testament pointing forward to the person of Jesus, different aspects of Jesus. There are literally, it's like 500 plus references in the Old Testament to the purpose, to the work, to the person, the ministry, to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Gospels are directly, overtly, and literally about Jesus' life, teaching, crucifixion, and resurrection. Acts describes the acts of the apostles of Jesus and the spread of the church of Jesus. The letters that follow Acts are about life with Jesus and Revelation is about the return of Jesus, as are portions of Daniel and Ezekiel. Friends, when people ask what the Bible is about, it's not an oversimplification to say Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus. C.S. Lewis says this, It is Christ himself who is the true word of God. The Bible, read in the right spirit and with the right guidance of good teachers, will bring us to him. This is what the Bible is about. And, and I want you to know that I'm not the only guy, the only pastor that's ever preached this, that C.S. Lewis is not the only uh, guy who's ever thought this as, a, as somewhat of a theologian. 
that 500 years ago when the reformers came on the scene, that, that their focus was a renewed focus to dive into the text and the context of Scripture in order to recognize how many times Jesus is pointed to throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And the reformers were by no means the first. The apostle Paul and all of the disciples and the apostles after the resurrection of Jesus did exactly the same thing. They went back into the Old Testament to recognize that, oh, this is about Jesus. And the model that the disciples had was Jesus himself. Some of you might remember that after the resurrection, Jesus is on this road to Emmaus with a couple of the disciples. And they're talking about all the stuff that's been going on. They're talking about Jesus and talking about the crucifixion. And Jesus takes that moment to educate them about what the scripture is really about. Look what it says here. It's on the screen, Luke 24, 27. Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See, Jesus is the first one to reveal to us that all of the prophets, all of the writings of Moses, all of the Old Testament, it's about him. Quick quiz, what's the Bible about? Today, that's the right answer. Actually, in church, that's always the right answer. All right, if you're filling in the blanks, the next one. The Bible is to be understood and applied through the lens of Jesus. So what I want to do is I want to give you a visual about how the whole canon of Scripture is about Jesus. And just to summarize what we've just talked about, you have all of the books of the Old Testament, and they all point forward to the person of Jesus. And then you have the Gospels, and they are about the life and the ministry, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And then you have the Acts of the Apostles, and it's about what the disciples did and how they followed Jesus and what the church, the birth of the church was as, as it followed Jesus. And then you have the letters, and they're all about what it looks like for us to live as Jesus' followers, to live a life with Jesus. And then you have Revelation, which is about the return of Jesus. So the entire thing points to the person of Jesus. It points to the work that he's accomplished on the cross, Right? He's the visible image of the invisible God that's revealed in Jesus. And because of all that, then Jesus becomes the window. He becomes the lens through which we now read the entirety of Scripture. If we're ever making a decision about interpretation, if we're ever making a decision about how to apply this book to our lives, we have to look at it through the lens of Jesus. Right? And, and the, the recognition that the, the things that come to my mind, and again, if these speak to you, write them down. But Jesus is the ultimate revelation. All of Scripture is a part of God revealing his heart and his will to us, but Jesus is the ultimate revelation. He is the pinnacle. He is the perfect theology revealed. And what Jesus does, many of you already know this, but the Bible is broken into two main sections, the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Testament or the New Covenant. The Old Covenant is based upon law. The New Covenant is based upon grace. And what Jesus does is he ushers us into the New Covenant. And the reason why he's able to do this is because he himself pays the penalty for all sin on the cross of Calvary. Jesus is the one who takes all of the blame, all of the shame, all of the guilt, all of the, 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 the stain of sin. He takes it upon himself. God says, I will take all of this and pay the price so that you don't have to. And, and in place of our guilt, in place of our shame, in place of all the things that we've ever done to hurt others or hurt ourselves, instead, Jesus takes that from us. And in its place, he gives us his righteousness. So we are not objects of wrath. We are children, dearly loved, of a most high God who is absolutely seeing us through the lens of Jesus Christ himself. So the whole purpose of this Bible, the whole purpose of, of all of Scripture is actually revealed to us in the book of John. At the very end of the book of John, chapter 20, um, it says this. These are written. In other words, we have this for a reason. These are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. 
life by the power of the name of Jesus. Abundant life now as he reveals to us the best way for us to live and then eternal life after this one is over, all because of what Jesus has accomplished. The next fill-in. The Bible is God-breathed and useful, inspired by him. God-breathed and useful. The God-breathed is the word that the Apostle Paul uses, and so that's why we're using it here. It just means that the Holy Spirit is the impetus behind it. The Holy Spirit is the inspiration. God breathed. Paul writes this in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture, he says, is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, What you see in this passage is that all scripture is helpful, right? It is useful. It's inspired by God, but for a purpose, God inspires all of scripture so that it will be useful for us. It will train us. It will equip us. It will rebuke us, get us right back on the right track, that there's a a purpose for the inspiration of God through scripture. And again, there have been 2,000 years of discussion about what exactly God breathed means. But it brings up a whole uh, a bunch of interesting questions to me. And here's a question that I've been asked. What does the Bible mean when it refers to itself? Or, a clearer question, does the Bible ever refer to itself? Now the answer is, the Bible is almost never self-referential. But it's a confusing answer. And here's what I mean. Some of us think that the Bible just dropped out of the sky like this. And it just sort of fell from heaven like this, and it was wrapped in leather, and it had your name on the front cover. And if you think about the Bible like this, then of course your head's kind of hurting right now. But, but when you think about the Bible being collected over the span of 1,400 years, and you recognize that, that it was written through the inspiration of God's Spirit, then it was collected and compiled through the inspiration of God's Spirit, and then it was kind of copied and recopied and passed down through the generations, all superseded by the inspiration of God's Spirit, then you recognize, oh, I, I get it. There, there's, there's more going on in this amazing book. So when you think about the Bible that says things about itself, it's helpful then to recognize, oh, it's probably not referring to itself. It's probably referring to what came before. So let me, let me just give you a couple of examples. David says this in Psalm 1830. He says, God's way is perfect. All the Lord's promises prove true. Now, we just finished talking about David all summer long. David, the, the, uh, the, the poet warrior of Israel. And, and so he writes these words. They, they are his. They're also mirrored in 2 Samuel 22. So collected a couple of different places in Scripture. All the Lord's promises prove true. But when David wrote that phrase, all the Lord's promises prove true, he was, he was referring to one of two things. He was referring to the promises that God made in the first five books of the Bible, the, called the books of Moses, the, the, uh, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the old, those first five books in the Old Testament, because those are the books that they had that communicated the law and the will of God through the law, and so David would have had those to reference. So he could have been talking about those, all God's promises in the, in the first five books, or David could have been talking about the promises that God had made specifically to him. Because you know that God did make specific promises to David throughout the course of his life, and God came through in all of the promises that he had ever made to King David. Now, what's interesting is, I believe that even as David wrote that, he was writing something that would also be true in the future, because I believe that all the promises that God makes in all the scripture prove true. I believe that God comes through in all of his promises that are found all the way throughout the book. But you have to recognize that when David wrote it, most of the rest of the book hadn't been written yet. So he wasn't referring to what hadn't yet been written. He himself was referring to what had already been written or what God had spoken directly to him. Does that make sense? I'll give you one more example. That verse that you've already looked at where the Apostle Paul's writing, all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful to rebuke and to train and correct and equip... When the Apostle Paul wrote that, he was writing a mentor letter to a young pastor named Timothy. And as he's writing this this letter to Timothy, he's saying, all scripture is God-breathed. What's Paul got in mind when he says scripture? The Old Testament. Why is Paul thinking about the Old Testament when he says scripture? 
because the New Testament hadn't been written and compiled yet. He didn't have the New Testament. And certainly what Paul wasn't doing is referring to his own letter. He wasn't writing a letter to Timothy going, this is awesome scripture, all scripture. I'm, you know, I'm inspired by God and this is all God. Like, no, he, he just was writing a letter to Timothy and yet I believe that God's Holy Spirit was working through that. And I do believe that all scripture is God-breathed and all of scripture, including the New Testament, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. But that's not what Paul was referring to. Does that make sense? All right. I can see by your faces I have lost almost everyone. Not all of you. Now, some of you are kind of eating this up. You're like taking notes. I see uh, we actually have a little video that kind of refers to this. Some of you are eating it up like this little white dog right here, just loving it. And others of you are like, oh, oh. Some of you are like, oh, I can't get enough of this. This is so great. Uh, 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 will he ever stop? Oh. Honestly, friends, this is why pastors very rarely talk about this stuff. It, it, it's true. This is why this is kind of reserved for seminary classes and Bible college classes. It, it's just because most of us, when we start thinking subtly and in a nuanced way about this incredibly unique book called the Bible, we start to get a little brain freeze. Like, it's just hard. It's so much easier just to pretend that it just dropped out of heaven, leather bound with my name on it. And I don't have to think about all this stuff. But here's the deal. The postmodern millennial generation are asking these questions. And if you and I, if we don't think at least deep enough to have some kind of a way that we ourselves have landed on this stuff, then we're going to be a stumbling block to them to have faith in Jesus Christ. Far be it for us, for the church to be a stumbling block for a seeking generation. So we've got to get our minds, our, our, our hearts around this, because I believe that when we do understand this with the subtlety and this nuance, it becomes even more powerful. It becomes even more beautiful. It has even more beautiful authority for a full and abundant life than we ever thought before we start thinking about it in this nuanced kind of a way. Okay, and the bottom line, friends, is that it's helpful. I mean, that, that, that's sort of like the, the litmus test of all this. It's helpful. This is an example of the author of life, the, the very one who came up with the concept of life and love and freedom and joy and hope, the one who came up with all this stuff. He's the one who's saying, let me tell you the very best way to live it. It's helpful f for us in that. This summer, I, I have really just, my heart has been filled with gratitude all summer long. And part of it's been the weather, and part of it's been uh, the weather, uh, and then, you know, the weather. And I, I just have I've loved, you know, after, after literally living in the toilet bowl of, you know, rain for 10 months straight, God just said, okay, Howerton, here, you know, just sunshine and glory, and I'm just, oh, thank you. So... My, and my family got me a paddleboard in, in July, so I've been paddleboarding all over, just all the lakes and a part of the sound, and just, it's just been so great. And um, This last week, I had a chance to go down to the South Sound. It's, it's sort of past Tacoma and the Tacoma Narrows, and my buddy has a house, a little cabin down in, uh, on this island called Treasure Island, which if it sounds magical, it absolutely is. And, down there with my son Doozy, and I'd get up early in the morning, and I'd go paddleboarding around the island, and I'd go paddleboarding to the other islands, and I'd play tag with the seals in the harbor there, and it just, just looking around at God's majesty everywhere. I mean, it just was, just my heart was filled with gratitude. But I, I noticed a couple of times, actually, both mornings I was up, the wind would kick up, and that my body would become a very effective sail. And, and that's a negative when you're trying to go against the wind. And as you're, as you're paddling against the wind, you know, or let me make this personal, as I'm paddling against the wind, my hair's blown back and I'm like, inch, two inches, like, like nowhere. I mean, I'm thinking this is like ridiculous. And and it's just so much effort and so disheartening. And you're kind of judging by the land over here. And you're like, I'm going backwards right now. And it's just, it's just so frustrating. 
And yet, if I could get myself to a place where I could turn my back to the wind, and I could let the wind propel me along, then it was like, whoo, I am awesome at this, you know? And I, I would just be trucking along and covering great distances and thinking, I, oh man, I have got this thing wired, just don't turn around. And, 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 and it was just wonderful how incredibly life-giving it was when my back was to the wind. And then it hits me, this is what happens when we open the pages of Scripture, that the author of life knows the very best way for life to happen. And so he's, he's telling us this. And you know what happens? What we all do is we all just go off and paddle our own directions. Oftentimes, we're going directly against the wind. We're wondering why we're so frustrated, why things are so hard, why I'm so demoralized, why nothing's working, right? We're just going after everything we got right against the wind. And, and yet, if we open the pages of Scripture and we bring our lives in alignment with what it is that God's heart for us is, and we are carried along by his power. And we are inspired and motivated and moved by his strength. And we are buoyed up in hope and we have this incredible purpose and there's this abundance and a joy and a love that happens. And, and it's all when we get ourselves in right alignment with his heart for us. And so that's why we open the pages of scripture and that's why we view these things the way that we're trying to view them and recognize that no, it's, it is God breathed. The breath of his spirit carries us along if we'll get our lives in alignment with his will. And lastly, if you're filling the blanks, the Bible's an invitation to relationship. It's an invitation to a deepening relationship with a God who made you and who loves you and who wants to be in a relationship of love with you. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The two words I'd love for you to circle are the words living and active. The word of God is living and active. This is not a dead document, but it is a living document. It has the ability to speak directly, uniquely, and personally into our lives, and that's because our God is not a dead God, but our God is living, and he is active, and he is present, he is near, and he communicates to us through the pages of his word. This springtime, I had the opportunity to take a couple of Overlake guys over to Montana on this discipleship retreat, and, and it's something that we're going to do again in 2018. We'll, we'll do two weeks, and so if that's something that feels exciting to you, some of you guys, it's the most intense and focused kind of spiritual formation uh, experience that I have ever had. It's, it's really... Um, the whole idea is that we want to cooperate with Christ forming his character within us. And so it's, it's just absolutely powerful. And one of the exercises that they have us do is, is the, they'll give a passage of scripture, the same passage of scripture to all the guys, and send us out in the morning. And we, we spend an hour, hour and a half reading the passage and then kind of journaling about the passage, asking God to speak to us through this passage. Then we come back together for breakfast and we share what it was that God was stirring in us, what he, what he was trying to, what we feel like God was communicating to us. What was so profoundly interesting to me, and I noticed it morning after morning, was what God would say to Jim was slightly different than what God would be saying to Lee. And what God was saying to these guys was slightly different than what God was saying to my heart. And at no point was there any contradiction in these ways that God was communicating to us, but it was just specific to the circumstances that we found ourselves in. It was just unique to where it was that we were in terms of our life stage, our kids, our marriage, or what, you know, kind of whatever. But it was like God, his word knows how to speak directly into the unique and personal circumstances of our lives. It, it's just so profound. And not only that, but the way in which I would be taking notes as, as to what God was saying to Jim, what God was saying to Lee, what God was saying to me, it made my experience of that pas passage so much more rich and full and vibrant. And that's why we like to do our faith journey together, right? We don't want to just be in isolation as we do these things. We'd like to be in community with one another and kind of be building off one another so that your faith encourages me and my faith encourages you. And so that's all going on. Why? Because it's living and active. There's a living Lord behind the pages of this book. 
Okay, so I want to give you a paradigm for applying Scripture, and this is where we'll wrap this thing up. The paradigm for applying Scripture is very simple. If you, if you interpret, if you apply, you understand context, and you apply correctly, the Scripture is this powerful authority. It's this incredible hope. It's this invitation to abundance and relationship. And so it's important for us to, to know the paradigm for us to apply this to our lives. So the first question we ask ourselves has to do with the time-bound principle. In other words, we have to ask ourselves these kinds of questions. What was the original context for this passage to be written? What did God intend for the original recipients of these words to understand? And how did he expect them to apply this passage into their lives when it was first communicated? So that's the time-bound principle. In other words, it's locked into a context. It might be 3,400 years ago, or it might be 3,000 years ago, or it might be 2,000 years ago. But it's important for us to understand what the original context was all about. But that brings us to the second question, which is, what is the timeless principle here? What is it that God expects for us to do in our context today? How do we understand it now that we're living 2,000 years later? How can we apply this richly into our lives of obedience today? What is God's expectations on that? So we're looking at a time-bound principle and then a time-less principle, and it brings us to the most important question, which is the Jesus principle. What is the Jesus principle? About 20 years ago, you might remember that there was a big thing about bracelets and necklaces and bumper stickers, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And I know it became cliche, and that's so sad because it's actually a great, great question to ask. What would Jesus do? How would Jesus want me to apply this into my life? What is Jesus' expectation for me to bring my life into obedience with this passage? I'll give you one quick example. Psalm 139 is an incredible psalm. I love this psalm. I call this one of David's greatest hits, Psalm 139. Some of you already know, you know, oh man, I love that passage because it talks about how near God is and he understands my heart even before I can talk to him about the things that are on my heart and I can't go anywhere to flee from his spirit because his spirit is everywhere and he knew me, even knit me together in my mother's womb and you know, oh, you know all that. It's just a great, great psalm. I love it. And, and at that very end, towards the very end of, of the psalm, David, he's, he's thinking about the enemies that he has as king, and he's thinking about the enemies of God, and he says to the Lord, he's talking to the Lord, shouldn't I hate my enemies with a pure hatred? Yes, I hate them with a pure hatred. Now, it's interesting. So you look at that, and then you sort of wrestle with it. Wait, you think. I'm a Jesus follower. What does Jesus say about our enemies? What are we to do with our enemies? How are we to treat our enemies? We are to love our enemies. That's right. We're to love our enemies. And so that sounds a little different than hate your enemies with a pure hatred. So what do we do? We do what Jesus would do. Does that make sense? Let me just tell you a pastor joke, and you're going to remember this more than anything else I've ever said, okay? What's the difference between Jesus and pizza? Jesus can't be topped. (laughs) Friends, Jesus can't be topped. If If there's ever a question as you're reading through the pages of Scripture... Oh, I don't, know how, I don't know how to reconcile these two passages. This seems to communicate this kind of a thing, but Jesus seems to say this kind of thing. Always go with Jesus. Jesus tops all. Jesus is the pinnacle. Jesus is the ultimate revelation. Jesus is perfect theology. Jesus is the invisible image of the visible God. If you ever have a question about how do I apply this thing to my life, always stick with Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen. All right. Let me close this thing up. There's one more word that I would suggest to you about this book. One more word that I would would have you think about, ponder, when it comes to this book. And it is the word holy. But I don't want to use it in sort of the overused sense of the word. I, I want to use it in its literal sense of the word. Holy meaning, I believe this book is, it's separate. 
I believe that it's set apart. I believe that it is unique. It's, it's not like any other book in history. It's not like any other religious book in history. It's not like any other instruction book in history. I, I actually believe that it's, it's set apart. It's unique. And I've been in ministry for just over 26 years, and almost every single day of the last 26 years, I try to get up before the other members of my family wake up, and I'll grab a coffee and my journal, and I'll go downstairs to my downstairs office, and I'll open the pages of this book. I can't even describe to you sometimes what just that act does. Like there are times when I'll open the pages of the Bible and and I'll get chills, goosebumps. That God just meets me in those moments. And and as I pour over the pages of scripture, I I see it as an invitation for a relationship to go deeper, for, for me to fall more in love with Jesus, for him to communicate his love more and more clearly to me. It's not like any other book. Even as I was writing that, that, that paragraph out to try to share with you today, like just writing the paragraph gave me chills because there's something absolutely beautiful and different, separate and holy about how God meets us through the pages of this book. So friends, that's, that's my prayer for us. As people who follow Jesus together, I, I just want to encourage you to to go into the book and and to dive into it and to to experience it again and again and again and to ask yourself these questions. Like, how does this reveal God's plan of salvation? And, and, And look for, right? Have the eyes to look, oh, I see how Jesus is all the way through this book and and recognize, okay, so this is instruction. So how is this helpful for my life today? How can I apply it? Lord, what what do you want me to apply and to understand and to take away from this passage? And, And the more and more we do that, I believe the richer our experience of God's love will be. I believe the more courageous and abundant the life that we live will be. And I believe, friends, that ultimately the salvation we experience will not just be when we die, but we'll experience his saving presence day after day after day. So friends, why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes and let's just ask him for his help. Jesus, we do ask you for your help when it comes to not only understanding and applying what we find in this book, but even to crafting and creating the discipline to getting into this book with great regularity, with great expectation, with great hope every time we open the pages of this book, we don't want to come to it with a sense of duty, but we want to come to it with a sense of excitement because we recognize that you are behind it and that you move through it, that this Bible is in so many ways a portal that we can step through and experience your love in more powerful and more profound ways. So we love you, Jesus. We thank you for being with us. My prayer right now, Holy Spirit, is is that you would speak to each heart, that you would allow them to take away exactly that which you wanted for them to take away today and allow us to put it into practice. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for giving us this book. We pray it in your name. Amen.